that come about. We will hopefully get that scheduled sometime before too much longer. Um, so stay tuned. All right. Well, I thought this morning we would open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Knowing that uh, breezes happen, I didn't even print out notes today. So I thought we chase them all over the field. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse 14. I'm going to go through verse 21. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And fathers, we take a moment on this passage. We want to thank you for a number of things. Number one, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you that you also have a call in our lives to know you, to walk with you, and even to share you and represent you in the world around us. And we just pray, Lord, that as we spend these times together, that, Lord, you would encourage us and flood our hearts with a deep love and appreciation for all that you've accomplished in Christ on our behalf. And also, Lord, that you would flood us with a sense of the the beautiful responsibility of being able to reflect your glory to the world around us and that others, too, might come and be saved. Thank you, Father, for this morning, and we thank you for the time you've given us to consider these words in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when we read a lot of Paul's writings, it is easy for us to, and understandable for us, to get caught up in a lot of the the theology. We want to dig into these things and understand the points Paul is making, and of course, that is vital for us. It's important for us to do that. We can't diminish that. But sometimes we miss some of the personal element that Paul includes in his writing. For example, when he says that we no longer know Christ according, just according to the flesh, that's a, that's a very real thing for Paul. When we first meet Paul, he's known as Saul, right? And Saul was not a beautiful church-going Christian guy who loved Jesus and those who followed him. As a matter of fact, he was violently persecuting those who followed the way, as it was known at that time. As they became known as Christians, Paul would likely have called them Christians, but it was not a compliment. The Christians would have taken it that way. But Paul would have been making fun of them or cutting them down or calling them out as the enemy of the state, if you will. Not only were they a people without a a family, in some sense, they were a people without a country in this world, at least, as Rome would have rejected them because they rejected the idea of bowing down to Caesar. Their own families and their own people oftentimes would reject them because they were following Jesus now, which was an affront if you were Jewish at that time and and, and certainly even at this time, honestly. But if you rejected this idea of Christ as the Messiah, 
then those who received him as Messiah were considered outcasts. And even to this day, from time to time, you will hear of families having funerals for their children or family members who come to Jesus. Well, Paul would have been those who would have been giving that a hearty amen. Paul was one of those who literally was going from place to place, dragging Christians out of their homes. Paul was, as a matter of fact, the first encounter we have with Saul, he is standing there holding the garments of people who are coming and stoning who would become the first martyr in the church, a young man named Stephen. Up until that Damascus Road experience, Saul hated Jesus and those who followed him. There's no way to overstate that. As a matter of fact, even today, when you and I face persecution, generally what we face is someone maybe snickering at us from another office cubicle, or maybe someone we hear someone over here, we overhear somebody talking about us behind our back. Did you know he believes this and that kind of thing? Chances are people aren't pulling you out of your home and stoning you. You know? But that's what it was like then. And Saul was one of those who not only supported that, but contributed to that. He was on his way to Damascus with papers to arrest more Christians when Jesus met him on the road. Jesus met him on the road. A light shone from heaven. Those who were with Paul heard a sound. Paul heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's difficult to kick against the goads. In other words, you're pushing hard against something and you're having very little success. There's something grating on you that you cannot overcome. That's me. That's me. And at that moment, Saul becomes a believer in Christ. He goes to Ananias' house. He's, of course, blinded in that encounter. Ananias prays for him. He receives his sight. And he begins this glorious ministry. So when Saul, now Paul, says, we no longer know Christ simply according to the flesh, that's a reality for him. He saw Jesus previously as simply a man who was leading people away from the faith of his fathers. Somebody who was a rabbi of sorts, but controversial to say the least, and somebody who he did not support clearly. He may have even been among those in the leadership class in Israel who were among those persecuting Christ as he went from place to place. But now he finds himself a believer. He doesn't know Jesus simply according to the flesh. It's no longer just this rabbi going along the hillsides in Galilee and such. But now I know him as Lord. And that has implications. That brings with it profound change. That brings with it an entirely new perspective on Christ himself and everything that that connects itself with. And Saul is allowing, is now growing, I shouldn't say allowing himself, but under the growth and inspiration and sanctifying of the Holy Spirit is now not only seeing his own life as being different, but he also now sees others differently as well. He no longer simply sees people as just a mass of humanity, people that need to be beaten in the line to follow the law of his fathers, but rather he sees them as people who have, like himself, an opportunity to have a right relationship with God in Christ. And for Paul to be able to assent to the idea that this is all found in Christ, again, was a monumental shift, a paradigm shift from what he once was to what he now is. And it's that very thing that forms the foundation of the power of the gospel, not only in his life, but in the lives of those who hear it. We go from what we once were to what we now are. We once were dead in sin. We once were lost on our road to an eternity apart from Christ in a place called hell, but now we find ourselves on the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. And not only are we on that road in the hopes that one day we'll get there, 
but rather we walk on this road with the assurance that we will one day stand in his presence because of what Christ has finished. Listen again to Paul's words. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And he goes on in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A Christian is not somebody who gives up one set of rules for another. A Christian is not somebody who just tries to be a little bit better person, hoping that he'll tip the scales in favor of himself when he stands before God one day. A Christian is a fundamentally different person than they were before they were in Christ. To be born again is exactly that. To be made new, to be born a second time into an entirely different kind of a family and to an entirely different kind of existence. You and I are no longer simply flesh and blood, walking around, living out our desires and that kind of thing in the hopes that we're good enough to one day go to heaven. But rather you and I, if we rightly understand the gospel, recognize that we're not good people who are doing enough good things to somehow be accepted by God in the end, but rather we're a bunch of fallen dead people who Jesus raised back to life and ultimately is going to ensure that we stand before God. So when he looks at us, he no longer sees us as what we once were, but as what we now are. That is the power of the gospel. That is what Paul is talking about. That is what Paul himself experienced. Now notice something here, and this is important for us. Verse 18, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And here's what that ministry is, that Christ or that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, all things are of God. God was reconciling us. The only part that we play in that is the us being reconciled. Okay? To be reconciled means to see the account in the red and to have somebody bring it up so that it's cleared. And nowhere in what Paul is talking about, and for that matter, nowhere in the entire gospel message, is there any part of that that we contribute to except being lost in need of being reconciled? Now, I say that's important for us to recognize because there may be people sitting here who don't know the Lord and you need to understand that this road you're on as you think you're trying to earn your way in, you need to understand you can't. There's no way that you'll ever balance the ledger. It is impossible for you. But even for believers, there is a tendency on our part that once we are saved to somehow feel as though we need to hang on to that in some way. Let me encourage you. Living a holy life is a call in Scripture. Right? The scriptures say this throughout. However, here's where we need to be clear on understanding. There are those of us who go through life once we are believers, feeling though, when I stumble and fall, and let's just call it what it is, when I sometimes run headlong into sin, even as a believer. You're all afraid to shake your heads like you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know better. When we sin, it's not a boo-boo, it's not a mistake, it's like, oh shoot, I shouldn't have done that. No, it's sin, it's an offense to God. However, because that offense was paid for at the cross, it was paid for at the cross, how much is left for you to pay for that now? None. So when we see sin, 
We are not okay with it. We don't live as though it's no big deal. We don't feel like it doesn't matter if we sin after we're believers. We just understand it in the right perspective. I am sorry when I stumble and fall. I am sorry when I violate that which God has said is good and right. By God's grace, praise the Lord, one thing I don't do is worry that I'm going to go to hell because I just did that. Is it because I deserve that? No, we've already hopefully made clear enough that I do. I do deserve that. But rather instead, it is because of what Christ has accomplished for me. All things are of God. The gospel is God-centered from start to finish. Even the fact that we are saved is ultimately for his glory. We benefit from it, no doubt. We're thankful for it, and God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son, that if we believe in him, we not perish, but have everlasting life. Love is at the heart of that. But ultimately, our salvation brings him glory. It magnifies him. It demonstrates grace and kindness on a level that is inexpressible. If he just saved one of us, that would be remarkable. The fact that he saved so many demonstrates the extent to which he will pour out his grace. The, the, the reach that he will extend to those who are dead and lost in sin. That is the love of God in action. But it is all of God. Paul would say in Romans chapter 4 verse 5 that he who believes yet doesn't have works is justified. Even in Ephesians 2 verse 10, it speaks about the good works that we do. They're laid out by him. It's not that we have somehow chipped away and done our thing and all that kind of thing. All of it is from him. David would say in Psalm 32, matter of fact, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to read from it. Psalm 32. And by the way, Paul quotes this in Romans as well. Listen to these words and let them wash over you. This is David in the Old Testament. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or does not charge his account with iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the one to whom God gives these things and for whom God does these things. David understood his own sin and David's sin was catastrophic. You know, it's interesting when you read the uh, people in scripture, there are those that you read that sometimes make you scratch your head and wonder if you're reading the story right. Because these are people that are seen as righteous, heroes. David, for example, is a man by which all other kings in Israel are measured. David is the guy among the kings of Israel. But David was responsible for committing adultery, and then in order to hide the pregnancy with Bathsheba, whom he got pregnant, he had her husband killed in the most deceitful, diabolical way. As a matter of fact, if you're not familiar with the story, just not to go into the whole thing, but just to give you a taste of it, David actually had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, David had gave Uriah his own death order, essentially, without him knowing it, gave it to him and told him to bring it to the place where he was going to die and to give it to the man who's going to be responsible for having him killed. Deceitful. There's no way to color that whitewashing. That's despicable. And he did it so that when his her husband was killed, he could then marry Bathsheba and make it look like he was being magnanimous about it. It was hypocrisy to the deepest possible level. But yet David is called a man after God's own heart. 
Now, for some of you sitting out there, you're saying, that's not right. No, it isn't. It makes no sense. But it brings me a lot of hope. God loved David in spite of his sin, just like he loves you and I in spite of ours. It's not that he winks at our sin. It's not that he thinks it a small thing. It's not that he just covers it over or sets it aside as though we're no big deal. He sees our sin and he paid for our sin himself out of his own storehouse, if you will. Again, giving you in his own son that we might be washed clean. The gospel is all about what he did. All we bring to the table is simply receiving that which has been given to us. All things are of God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. It would be one thing to recognize the line that we cross from going from death to life, from being lost to being saved. But to recognize that God has not only saved us, but has made us new. Now, if we're being honest, sometimes we feel new. Sometimes when we're walking with the Lord, we just sort of experience a joy of fellowship with him that is a reminder of the fact that we've been made new. At least positionally, we understand that. But a lot of times we really don't. And we think, really? I'm still wrestling with this. I'm still fighting against that. I still have this deal in my life that has to be contended with and this kind of thing. No, but the deal is, is that he who knew no sin took our sin upon himself that we might take on his righteousness. And now God sees us as a finished work positionally. And on top of that, one day will actually be a finished work practically, physically, as he gives us glorified bodies for a fit for heaven. All of this is from God. Now, this is the kind of thing that should do two things. This is the kind of news that should accomplish two purposes. One, it should finally set aside any sense that we somehow can earn the grace of God. We can't. Matter of fact, turn, you know, for many of you, this is a familiar passage, but if you want to turn there, if not, I'm just going to read it. But this is Ephesians chapter 2. And again, while this is familiar, well-trotted ground by many, it's not necessarily for everybody. And some things you just can't hear enough. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Every part of this deal is given to us by God. It is beautiful, it is free, it is given to us generously and genuinely by God himself. It is not of works, lest we should boast, or lest we should diminish what this news is and say that we had something to do with it, that we somehow brought it to ourselves. We, we worked our way in, and like Frank Sinatra, we did it our way. That's the worst theology. That is the most damnable theology you could ever hear, honestly. No, he did it his way. And he invites us to come and receive. And so I'm going to bring this to a close. This is my gift to you, a nice brief message. Because I know you all want the food. So, But as we bring this to a close, again, I never know for sure where somebody's at. I mean, I feel like I do with most folks, but you don't know everybody well enough. 
And so I want to give an opportunity to re- for you to receive Christ here today, for you to move from the road, the broad road that leads to destruction, to the narrow road that leads to everlasting life by simply receiving that free gift that God has given in Christ. So I'm going to pray. And if you don't know Jesus personally, if you've never come to that point where you acknowledge that you, in fact, are a sinner, you need him. This is for you. And now's the time. Father, we want to thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. Grace that is undeservable, unearned, but so freely given by you to us. How we bless you and praise you for demonstrating such love and such grace. Father, we thank you that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That he would take our garments stained in soil and instead give us his white as the driven snow. Father, we thank you and praise you for this. If you're here today and you realize that you are outside of Christ, outside the grace of God, you've never come and received that gift of his grace and the freedom that forgiveness brings, I invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I have kept you away and I've gone my own way. But I realize now that I was wrong and that apart from Christ and what he had finished for me on the cross, I'm as lost as can be. But I do believe that Jesus died for my sin, that he was buried and that he rose the third day even according to the scripture. And that he did so for me. I trust him as my own Lord and Savior now. And pray that you would help me to walk in his ways in response to his grace to me. That I would love him back for his deep and abiding love toward me. That I would remember that I'm safe and secure in his hands and not in my own. I thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, and all that you have done to set me free. And I look forward to seeing you one day, face to face, unashamed and unafraid. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. We're going to go ahead and sing a closing song together. Let me go ahead and uh, actually, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. We have done all kinds of planning on how to do this. We're going to share communion. And uh, as we do, we're going to invite you. I, th- I think we decided we're going to have everybody sit. We'll pass it out. Okay. We're going to have the ushers bring communion around to you all. So uh, if you want to just stay in your seats as we worship and as they pass this out, and then we'll partake together.
on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus met with his disciples. And he broke bread with them in a ceremony that they had been used to for their whole lives. Passover Seder, where they would gather together and go through the various elements of it. And at one point he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And so as we take this bread, and as we share in it, we are seeing symbolized here the fulfillment of the promises that God gave his people from generations past that we've been now invited to join and to celebrate. So as we partake of the bread, we remember, as he invited us to, his broken body for us. So let's partake. accomplished for us in Christ. We pray that, Lord, our hearts again would be just flooded 
with an understanding of your love and the depth of it. We praise you. We bless you for our time here today. And as we continue, we pray you bless our food, our time together, our fellowship. Let it be sweet and refreshing for all and a glorification for you, Lord. Thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, by the way, um, are we doing a closing song too? Sure. After our closing song, we're going to go ahead and invite you to uh, uh, enjoy a, a great pulled barbecue lunch. And thank you all for bringing stuff and everybody who set things up. But before we do our closing song, how many of you all have a June birthday? Put your hands up high. All right. Big J over here. So, Jack, Wendy, anyone else? Oh, here we go. Yeah. Uh, JJ, who else? Oh, Valerie. There you are. I thought you were pointing to someone else. I'm sorry. Valerie, was Hannah jumping up too? Oh, Aubrey and Finn. Okay. Well, we're going to sing happy birthday. And also, by the way, who else? That's it. Jack, right? Yeah. Okay. There you go. There you go. And then also, we're, uh, we also got uh, some cupcake, cupcakes as well because we're celebrating graduations as well. Who graduated this year as well? I know Selena graduated. She graduated from U of I, right? That's awesome. That is a big accomplishment. With honors, by the way, too. But you all didn't know we had such smart people in our midst here. That's pretty awesome. Anyone else graduate too? All right, there we go. There we go. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. So we're going to celebrate you as well. But let's go ahead and sing happy birthday to our June birthdays, all right? I guess let's start over here. So we got Valerie and JJ. We got uh, we got Aubrey. We got Finn. We got Jack. We got We got Wendy. We got Jack. Is that everybody? All right. Okay. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Valerie and JJ and uh, Aubrey and Finn and Wendy and Jack. That's everybody, right? Okay. Happy birthday to you. Praise the Lord. So let's all stand this in a closing song and let's have lunch. We're going to sing Song of the Lamb. Should be on the front side of your song sheet.
God bless you all. Enjoy your fellowship time. I think you saw that 